Take up your Bibles, if you will, now, and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings, and we'll be reading in the 13th chapter, just two verses, 20 and 21. So 2 Kings 13, 20 and 21. Elisha died, and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. This text, of course, is quite brief and quite unusual, and we will come back and consider its peculiarities as we go along tonight, but I just want to begin by noticing the obvious, and that is that this text deals clearly with the death of Elisha, the mighty prophet of God. The death of Elisha. Elisha died, and they buried him. That will be our second point tonight, the death of Elisha, but it may be helpful. I think it's really probably necessary in order for us to understand that second point, the death of Elisha, to spend some time rehearsing the annals of the life of Elisha. The life of Elisha. Who was this prophet whose very bones seemed to have the power to raise the dead? Who was he? Well, we must begin by saying that Elisha, the mighty prophet, was not always a mighty prophet. There was a time when he was simply described as the one who pours water on the hands of Elijah. Elijah, with a J in the middle of his name, had been the greatest Old Testament prophet since Moses. It's no accident, for instance, that it was he, along with Moses, who appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. There had been no one quite like Elijah. And Elisha had simply been Elijah's servant, his personal assistant the one who poured water on Elijah's hands. And I should note in passing that there is a lesson in that. Elisha was a great prophet, but before he became a great prophet, he was content simply to be a servant. And we'd all do well to remember that. But of course, Elisha was not destined to remain an assistant. In the book of 1 Kings, Elijah had anointed him at God's direction to be his own successor. Elisha would carry the prophetic torch before the nation of Israel. And in the book of 2 Kings, Elisha began to assume that role. You may remember the remarkable story. Elisha's master, Elijah, was one of only two men in the Bible to depart this world without crossing the river of death. There was Enoch, who walked with God and was not, because God took him straight to paradise. And then there was Elijah, who also went to paradise without facing the pains of death. Instead, the Lord swooped down in a chariot of fire and carried the prophet beyond the horizon to be always with the Lord. And on the day that it happened, Elisha seemed to have known what was coming. He seemed to have known that it was his master's time to depart. And so he prayed... He asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit to fall on him. And it did. And as symbolic of that fact, when Elijah was whisked away by the chariots, his cloak or mantle 
fell from him and was picked up by Elisha. And it became a symbol that the spirit of Elijah now rested on his servant. Well, Elisha picked up the cloak after Elijah had disappeared into the clouds, and he walked back toward the Jordan River to make his way home. And like his master had done before him, Elisha struck the Jordan River, and the waters parted for him just like they'd done for Elijah, and he walked over on dry ground. You may also remember that as he made his way home mourning his loss, some young boys came up to him mocking his bald head, and Elisha cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came from the woods and mauled them in their sin. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century preacher, has a great little tract for children on that passage called The Two Bears. You can purchase it at Amazon. These were the first signs that the God of Elijah was now also with Elisha in this unusually powerful way. You may also remember the story of the widow woman who was destitute because of the debts left behind by her husband's untimely death and Elijah multiplying her little jar of oil so that it filled many jars which she could sell and pay off her debts. Later, when another woman's son died, we find Elisha entering the boy's room and praying, stretching himself out on the boy until God raised him from the dead. And who can forget the story of Naaman, the captain of the army of Aram, who had everything that a successful man could want, but, says the scriptures, he was a leper. And who can forget his little Israelite servant girl telling him of the prophet in Samaria, so that Naaman went to Elisha and heeded his instructions, washing seven times in the Jordan, and came out with his skin, Second Kings 5, restored like the flesh of a little child. It was a remarkable life Elisha lived, filled with a double portion of the Spirit. And that life was marked by remarkable miracles, some of the most memorable in the Old Testament. But I want you to see that in all of these things, in all of these miracles, and in this amazing life that he lived, Elisha was writing after the copy of Jesus. Elisha was imitating Jesus. Now, I understand, I know that Elisha lived many centuries before Christ came into the world. But as we've been seeing in these studies of gospel portraits, so many Old Testament people and events look strikingly like Jesus, not because Jesus was imitating them, but because in advance they were imitating him. God designed Elisha's life so that in advance he would mirror the coming Messiah. So that when Jesus came, God's people would recognize him as sent from God. The God of David, the God of Hosea, the God of Aaron, and Elijah, and Elisha. And doesn't Elisha's life strikingly mirror that of Jesus? Elisha came after the greatest prophet of his times, Elijah. But Elijah was merely a forerunner of someone greater, someone with a double portion of the Spirit. And so we find it with the one whom Jesus called the New Testament Elijah, John the Baptist. He was the greatest of prophets, Jesus said. But after him came one, the thong of whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. 
Recently, I was listening to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson on the comparison between Elijah and Elisha, and I'm indebted to him at this point. Jesus and John the Baptist were like Elijah and Elisha all over again. The great prophet succeeded by one even greater, Ferguson points out, and it's wonderful to see. It's not by coincidence that the names of Jesus and Elijah, Elisha, I should say, mean virtually the same thing. The Lord saves. Elisha is an Old Testament portrait of the coming Savior. And it's no accident that, like Jesus, multiplied the loaves and fishes for the poor folks on the Galilean hillside, so Elisha multiplied that poor widow's oil until she had more than enough. Surely we hear echoes of the ministry of Jesus too when we read of Elisha raising the Shunammite woman's son because Jesus also raised a woman's son from the dead in the little village of Nain just a couple of miles away from the ancient site of Shunem. And of course, who can help but think of Jesus when we hear of Elisha cleansing the leper? Do you see? God sent Elisha to the people of Israel like Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and so many others as well to provide a template for the coming Messiah. Now, none of those Old Testament people, of course, could provide a complete messianic portrait on their own, but piece together what a marvelous mosaic they form of the coming Son of God. And as I've said before, we need to read the Old Testament in that way. There are, of course, many things for us to see and learn and admire in the Old Testament heroes, godly character traits, lessons in God's providence. Sometimes they give us examples of what we should not do. But more than anything else, we need to see in so many of these Old Testament heroes the approaching shadows of the Savior who is moving inexorably to the zenith of biblical history. That is what the Old Testament heroes are. They are the shadows that announce that the noonday sun is rising, the sun of righteousness who arose in the New Testament with healing in his wings. The name Elisha means my God saves or my God is Savior. And it's little wonder that his life should so remarkably mirror the Savior. Indeed, Elisha provided a picture of God's salvation, not only in his ministry to individuals like like the widow woman or the leper in Aram, but he was also a picture of God's salvation in the way he ministered to Israel as a whole. The great enemy of the people of God in those days was the nation of Aram or Syria. And one of the running themes in Elisha's life is how by his advice and By his prophecy, he constantly helped the kings of Israel prevail over the kings of Aram. The kings of Israel seemed always to know where the armies of Aram would strike next and how to best fend off their attacks, so much so that the king of Aram at one point thought that he had a mole in his camp, someone who was secretly relaying his battle plans to the king of Israel. And when he called his officers on the carpet concerning this presumed leaking of information, one of his servants said in 2 Kings 6, 12, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. That was the kind of insight God gave Elisha. And he used it again and again, just like Jesus, to rescue the entire company of God's people from death 
at the hands of their enemies. Elisha's life is one long portrait of the way God ministers to us in Jesus. But now, in 2 Kings 13, as we come back to it, I want to show you that not only do we see the shadows of Christ in the life of Elisha, but we see them especially in the death of Elisha. And that brings us back here to verses 20 and 21. Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now there we hear it again, don't we? This is a strange little passage. And it's, it's strange, it's peculiar on a number of fronts. First of all, because it's so abrupt. In the previous passage, we were told that Elijah was sick with the illness of which he was to die. And so we are given fair warning that he's dying. But then it just happens suddenly in verse 20 with no details and no further information. We're not told where he died or who was there or what he said with his last breaths, what was said at his funeral, where the grave was located. None of the things that we would expect to know about the death of such a great man. All we're told is simply Elisha died and they buried him. And one of the great men of the Old Testament disappears from the record just like that. And the passage not only begins abruptly, but it ends in just the same way. Here's a man raised from the dead, one of the most amazing miracles imaginable, and all we have to explain it is two verses. We're never told what happened to this man after these events. We're not told what his companions thought about this unusual ending to their funeral procession. Nor are we alerted to any theological lessons that are to be garnered from this event. They just throw the body into Elisha's tomb and the man comes to life again and that's the end of all that is said about it. And so I say this is an odd passage of Scripture. And even more unusual than the abruptness of it is the miracle itself. The resurrection of a man from the dead is unusual enough, but we do see that happening a few times in the Bible, including, as we said, in the ministry of Elisha. But never do we see a resurrection quite like this one. There's no prayer in 2 Kings 13. There's no laying on of hands. There's no faith involved in this at all. The men carrying their friend through the cemetery weren't like those men in the New Testament who carried their friend up onto the roof and lowered him down through a hole to get him to Jesus. These men here weren't exercising faith like that. They weren't looking for any miracle. They weren't coming to the prophet like Naaman had done in times past to be healed or or to see a miracle done. They weren't coming to the prophet at all. They were just coming to the cemetery, paying their last respects and burying their dead. And they, they, they brought the man there, not because they expected anything miraculous to happen, but just to finish off their duties to their friend. And then they, when they saw the marauding bands coming, they simply threw him into the tomb because they had to run for their lives. And stranger still, Elisha, the man who tu- whose touch effected the miracle, was dead. He was dead. 
He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He didn't pray any prayer. He didn't touch the man himself. He was just laying there his bones in the tomb. And yet the man came to life. Here is a miracle holy of God. There's no human explanation for this. There's no human prayer or faith or godliness mixed into this equation. The prophet does not stretch out his body over this dead man's body and breathe on it like he did before and see the the man come to life. No, God did this all by himself and in a most bizarre way. Who ever heard of two dead things touching one another and in so doing, producing life. It's a curious account, isn't it? And the question we need to ask is simply, what are we supposed to learn from this unusual story? Why are these two verses here in 2 Kings 13, just sort of inserted in with very little comment? What are we supposed to glean from this? Well, one answer is pointed out by Ivor Martin, pastor of the Free Church of Scotland in Stornoway, And I've been helped tremendously, and I'm leaning on many of the things he said as we proceed along in this passage. One answer to the meaning of this passage, he points out, is simply that this event was God's final stamp of approval on Elisha's ministry. Great as the prophet was, the people of Israel still remained distant from God during his ministry. The kings were ungodly. Many of the people were idolatrous. The people, in other words, had not listened to Elisha's message nor turned to Elisha's God. They liked it when he did miracles. They certainly liked it when he revealed the king of Aram's battle plans and saved Israel's hide from military disaster. But for the most part, they hadn't really listened to what he had to say about God. But Martin points out, This miracle was one final sign from on high that a prophet had indeed been in their midst. It wasn't just any set of bones that set this dead man on his feet, but the bones of the man of God. And it's as though God is saying in this miracle, you didn't listen to him in his life, but now listen to him in his death. See in this miracle that there really was a prophet in your midst and remember what he said to you and heed it. And return to the God of Elisha, the God who saves. So that's one reason this little passage is recorded for us here in 2 Kings 13. As God's final stamp of approval on Elisha's ministry. But this passage is also here, as it were, as God's stamp of approval on Jesus' ministry as well. Elisha's death is another portrait of another foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus. It's recorded here, these events, I believe, to get us ready for the coming, dying Savior, to recognize Him when He comes. And this passage helps us to recognize Jesus, helps prepare us for Jesus in a couple of different ways. First of all, Elisha's burial mirrors that of Jesus, does it not? His burial. As I mentioned already, no details of Elisha's funeral are given. No speeches are recorded, no discussion of the mourning of the people, no recitation of the inscription on his gravestone. In fact, one gets the feeling 
We're not told for sure, but one gets the feeling from the paltry way that Elisha's burial is described in verse 20 that this is all there was to say. Really, Elisha died, and they buried him, just like any common fellow, any know-nothing would be buried. And here's a reminder that great men are not always held in great honor, sometimes not even in death. Elisha had been the voice of God to his entire generation of Israelites and one of the great men the nation had ever seen. And all that could be recorded of his death was simply Elisha died and they buried him. Who buried him? Where? Did they grieve for him at all? Did anyone give a speech? We're not told anything. Probably because there wasn't much more to tell. Elisha's burial seems to have been unceremonious at best and ignoble at worst. But here again is a picture of Jesus. For because of the hatred of him among the powers that be and the stigma that was therefore attached to his name and because of the proximity of his death to the beginning of the Sabbath day and because of the fewness of his followers, Jesus, the great axis point of history, the great Messiah the world had been waiting for, the sinless one, the great teacher, the one who would save his people from their sins, the Son of God himself was buried hurriedly by two men who were not even among his inner circle of friends in a borrowed tomb with no inscription and no eulogy and no funeral and none of the normal preparation of his body for burial. And if Jesus could be laid to rest in such a nondescript way, It's no surprise that Elisha, the shadow of Jesus, would meet with similar burial. And perhaps it's a reminder that we shouldn't be surprised ourselves if any of us feel similarly unappreciated. We are to be the shadows of Christ, the mirrors of Christ, the representatives of Christ in the world. And if Christ wasn't appreciated, and if his prophets weren't appreciated, then we shouldn't be surprised if we sometimes aren't as well. It's not always the case, but it may be. You may be the only voice for Christ in your family or in your workplace or in the classroom. And therefore, in God's sight, you are exceedingly valuable. You are an exceedingly precious commodity to those people. But don't be surprised if they don't recognize it. Don't be surprised or have your feelings hurt if you're not missed when you're gone. This is so often the way that it goes for God's people. So often we live for Christ in our generation and then we die like grass and our place acknowledges us no longer. But God acknowledges us. God does not overlook our faithfulness. God sees and just as he here put his stamp of approval on the faithfulness of Elisha, so he will do with you in heaven if not in this world. If I have been faithful to God, and I have his well done waiting for me on the other side of the veil, it is enough, even if all they can say of me is, he died, and they buried him. Just like Jesus, Elisha died, and they buried him, apparently unceremoniously. But there's something else about Elisha, something even more important that points us beyond himself and to the Savior. Note well that the crux of this story centers on one amazing fact, namely that the unnamed dead man in verse 21 came to life 
through his contact with Elisha's bones. He rose from the dead because he came into contact with the man of God who was dead. We might also say, and I believe this comes again from Ivor Martin in Scotland, that this man lived because the man of God died. This man lived because the man of God died. Now that sounds preposterous if we just read it in a vacuum, doesn't it? How can one man's death create another man's life, resurrect another man's life? It sounds impossible, but isn't that the message of the gospel? Do we not gain new life because we are touched by Christ's death? Is it not true that we live because he died? The gospel works a lot like the events in 2 Kings 13. Jesus died and they buried him, yes. But when, by the preaching of the gospel, we come into contact with his death, we revive and stand on our feet. When the Holy Spirit like these men, threw their friend upon the bones of Elisha, when the Holy Spirit casts us upon the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, we revive and stand up on our feet, do we not? Isn't that what happened to you if you're a Christian? You live because Jesus died. And the precise moment when you revived and stood on your feet is when the Holy Spirit cast you upon his bones, pulled out of socket for your sins, when the Holy Spirit cast you upon the back of the crucified Savior, furrowed for your iniquities, when the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of His Word, cast you upon the pierced hands and feet of Jesus, wounded for your transgressions, when the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of His gospel, united you with Christ crucified, that's when you stood on your feet, when you the dead one came into contact with Christ, the crucified. No one ever truly lives spiritually until he comes into contact with the Savior who died. Without Jesus, we are dead men walking, dead to a relationship with God, dead to the abundant life he intends for us, dead to any hope of the future, and on the fast track to eternal death and hell. But Jesus died in our place. Jesus absorbed the punishment that our sins deserve. Jesus died and they buried him so that we might live. When the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Has that ever happened to you in the realm of your soul? Have you been made alive spiritually? If so, the first thing you will have done Once the Holy Spirit brought you into contact with Christ, once he made you alive with him and you stood up on your feet, the first thing you will have done is to get right back down and cast yourself on the bones of Jesus in repentance and faith. Cast yourself on his nail-pierced hands. The first thing you did when the Holy Spirit made you alive together with Christ was to cast yourself upon his broken body and shed blood as your only hope of life, abundant and eternal. Have you done that? Has the Holy Spirit so brought you into contact with the crucified Christ that you have cast yourself upon him? Do you have new life in Christ? Oh, has God met you in all your spiritual deadness and revived you and stood you back on your feet? And have you therefore cast yourself upon the broken Savior as your only hope of righteousness before a holy God? And are you now walking 
on your feet in a new kind of holiness and love for God and hunger for his word? If so, you are not only walking in newness of life, but you are walking alongside Jesus. Because, unlike the bones of Elisha, Jesus not only makes us revive and stand on our feet, but he himself did the same. After three days in his borrowed tomb, he rose again, so that while, yes, we trust in a crucified Savior, we cast ourselves upon a dying Savior, we also cling to and now walk with a risen Savior, a living friend. Do you know this Savior who died so that you might live and whoever lives so that you will never die? And if not, will you cast yourself upon him this evening? When the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. And I pray that the same may have been happening or happening again, as it were, for many of you as I have labored to cast you into the grave with Jesus so that you might walk out of it alive forevermore. For when you touch him, the crucified one, you will revive and you will stand on your feet.